Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Making Friends with Your Meditation, Part 4, by Lama Kathy Wesley. In this final talk of the four-part series, Lama Kathy reviews meditation techniques and describes how to put our skills of mindfulness and alertness to work for us in our daily lives, so meditational skills can help us transform our everyday lives. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, uh, this is uh, Kathy Wesley uh, saying hello to all of you who are watching at home. Uh, and thanks very much for being with us today. I'm hoping everybody is doing good. We're on maybe the eighth or ninth week of sheltering in place in the state of Ohio. And uh, for many of us, it's been kind of like a mini retreat, and it's been not exactly, what's the word? It's not exactly been painful, uh, except, of course, not being able to uh, go where you want, when you want. But it reminds me a lot of being in retreat, so it's, uh, it's not all bad. Um, but in any case, I hope that you're all doing okay, that you're faring well, that your health is good, and that you're able to get some Dharma practice done. Uh, while I'm talking today, um, I am going to be asking if folks have questions about meditation. So if you have questions about meditation, you can put them in the comment section on Facebook. I'm sorry, I have not enabled uh comments for YouTube yet. I'm still working on all of the details. So uh, so in any case, um, it would be great if uh, you could put your questions in the uh, in the section uh, in the comment section on Facebook and I'll try to get to those in a few minutes. Um, the main thing I wanted to do today was to wrap up our discussion of uh, making friends with your meditation. Uh, we've been talking about this uh, now for a couple of weeks, and this is the, I think, actually it's the three weeks, and so this is the fourth and final episode in the series on um, on making friends with your meditation. So hopefully you've had a good week meditating, and we'll be able to talk a little bit now, today, about where we go from here uh, with our meditation. So I'm going to begin with a short Buddhist prayer. The prayer I'm going to be reciting is the four-line uh, refuge prayer. And if it's a prayer with which you're familiar, you can join in. And if it's not a prayer with which you're familiar, you can join in in your heart and in your mind, uh, thinking that you dedicate this time together uh, to uh, being, with, um, being with us for the benefit of all sentient beings. O Sanje Chudang Sochi Chonamla Jang Chu Pardu Dani Kyapsuchi Daji Jin Soji Pe Sunamki Drola Penchu Sanje Druparsho O Palen Savilama Rimboche Tagichi or Pede Tenchula Kajun Jambo Gwene Jesunte 
Okay, thank you. So um, we've it, we've had quite a journey, uh, a journey the last few weeks talking about meditation. Uh, as you know, uh, since um, since we um, are all sort of in semi retreat, I thought that this would be a good opportunity for us to talk about. Uh, meditation and how to improve our meditation. And so uh, in the first episode, we talked about the basic techniques of of quiet sitting meditation called shamatha in Sanskrit. And she nay, she means peace abiding, so calm abiding in Tibetan. So whether we call it she shamatha or tranquility meditation, we talked about the basic techniques and methodologies uh, in the first episode. In the second episode, the um, the various uh, types of uh, obstacles that could arise and how to work with them. And in the third episode, we talked about um, we uh, the first part of where to go from here with our shamatha. In other words, where does shamatha take us? And we'll complete that topic. Uh, just to remind you, I am basing my remarks on two books. Books, uh, Kempo Carter Rinpoche's book, uh, Excellent at the Beginning, and um, the uh, second one, uh, so uh, Kempo Carter Rinpoche's uh, two books on um, Dharma, on uh, meditation. Okay, so um, in any case, um, I think that the best way to begin uh, the session today would be with a short session of meditation. Um, in order to practice uh, meditation, uh, we uh, sit quietly uh, and we can either sit on the floor or we can sit in a chair. And if you're sitting in a chair, you put your feet flat on the floor, hip width apart, and place your palm downward on the tops of your legs. If you're sitting in one of the cross-legged positions, you also can uh, put, your, um, uh, put your hands uh, palm downward on your legs. So uh, that's the first of the positions of meditation, uh, working with the legs. Next, we work with the seat. Uh, the, one of the better ways to ground yourself on the seat is to rock gently from side to side and fold in the muscles of the backside, creating groundedness on your seat. Next, you can, uh, you can straighten your back so that you, the back still has nice natural curves in it, and yet you are, um, your arms can be allowed to rest naturally with their natural bent. And then, uh, and, and then the, um, I'm sorry, I'm having a technical difficulty here. Let's see if I can fix it. Yeah, okay, I think it's gonna be okay. Um, and, uh, and so the, um, and so after one places one's hands, hands, arms, and then the, the chin to the upper palate behind the teeth, which is the muscles of the face. So uh, we begin with the three excellences. The first of the three excellences is excellent at the beginning, meaning that we start our meditation session with a, uh, with a sense of dedicating it, and our motivation is to the motivation to benefit all beings. And then, um, and then, this, and then the second excellent in the middle is practicing the technique. Now, remember, the technique is to watch and observe the breath as it comes in and goes out. Observing the breath with our mind's eye, in other words, 
observing the breath with our attention. And then uh, when our attention wanders, using the technique we spoke about called uh, touch and let go, go, and then return your attention to the breath for a fresh start. So, and the use of the touch and let go, touching and letting go and returning for a fresh start using the, that is our technique. We're going to meditate for about two minutes. So um, put yourself in the posture of meditation and start with the, um, with the excellence at the beginning by thinking that you're going to do this practice for the benefit of all sentient beings. And then taking one deep breath to begin with, breathing as though it's going below the navel and then breathing out. Then allow the breath to come and go naturally noting the passing of the breath as it comes and goes. And if you wish, you can even count the breath. In breath, out breath, mentally count one. In breath, out breath, mentally count two, and so on. So we'll do that meditation now for just a few minutes. Placing the body in the trip meditation, taking one deep breath, breathing out, and then placing one's attention on the breath. That's a short session of, of meditation. Uh, so uh, now I'm going to spend a couple of minutes reviewing what we have already learned about the, the skills that we're developing in shamatha meditation and then how to work with those skills going forward. If you remember from our previous uh, time together, we talked about two skills. We talked about Mindfulness and alertness. And uh, these two skills, mindfulness and alertness, are what we are developing in the practice of shamatha. And if you remember from our uh, little diagram, uh, when we were talking about the stages of meditation, uh, these, uh, these two forces, these two uh, qualities uh, of uh, mindfulness and awareness or alertness, were symbolized in this uh, lovely drawing of the elephant 
and uh, the meditator. The meditator is uh, here and the elephant is the meditator's mind and the meditator is chasing the elephant to see if they can tame them. And of course the elephant uh, is uh, led by a monkey, which is our uh, mental agitation as we try to meditate. So the, the lack of mindfulness is how we establish the technique and continue the technique throughout the same in mindfulness or patient, the small hook, what that does watching the breath. It's, it, it is the part of us that notices and then allows us to return. So those are the two skills that we are uh, developing in the practice of meditation. So uh, in any case, um, are great, but they're not everything. Uh, they are merely the beginning of what will be our meditation as we go forward. And so that's what we did in the second episode. We talked a little bit more about Drenpa and Shashin, and we talked a little bit more about how to work with agitation and how to work with drowsiness. We described the meditation techniques for uplift, uplifting us in situations of uh, torpor or drowsiness. And we also talked about how to calm the mind in situations of, um, of agitation. So uh, this is um, what we've been talking about thus far. Now, um, in, in terms of where we go from here, uh, in our last episode, we talked about uh, what to do with this mindfulness that we're developing. Because we're not just developing mindfulness for its own sake. Remember from the first episode, we talked about Kempo Kartha Rinpoche's advice, where he said that uh, uh, doing your shamatha meditation is like sharpening a knife. If you never cut with the knife, then the, it doesn't make sense to uh, sharpen it. And so what we're talking about in terms of meditation is that when we practice mindfulness and alertness, we're going to be able to use those two skills in helping us in our everyday life. And we talked a little bit about that last time in that if you are more mindful and alert, you will notice your thoughts as they arise instead of noticing them when you're five minutes into telling someone off because you got angry. I think that for many people, this, um, this mindfulness at first is a bit of a burden because you have to uh, cope with and notice all of the things that you didn't notice or cope with at first with your mind, with your thoughts. And in other words, when we know that to a certain extent, we are continuing our thoughts uh, willfully and purposefully when we see that, because that's what's actually happening through our habits. We continue thoughts and we like certain thoughts and dislike certain thoughts and, and are always in this uh, situation of reacting to liking and disliking things. And so when we're in this, these patterns of reaction, we don't notice our thoughts. And then we say and do things that we're not thinking about. And saying and doing these things that we're not thinking about, we end up harming ourselves and harming others. And this is totally unintentional on our part, but we are drawn by and driven by our habits. And the way to break those habits is to offer the, to do the practice of mindfulness and alertness, and then use our mindfulness and alertness to notice our patterns and begin to change them. And so we talked about that last time, that one of the most powerful things we can do with our mindfulness is change our thought patterns and our reaction patterns. So for example, if someone is saying something to us and we're finding it objectionable, 
what we actually could be doing instead is we could be breathing. We could just be noticing our breath, disengaging from the uh, stimulus of somebody saying something that is provoking, disengaging from that and watching our mind and watching our reaction and then being with our breath as it comes in and goes out as a way of centering ourselves in the midst of the difficult situation. And using mindfulness and alertness in this way, we can begin to get control, at least a small measure of control over our reactions. And then at the end of last week's episode, I talked about the how we put in, begin to put in positive thoughts and ideas, such as compassion, training the mind in love and compassion. And when we train the mind in love and compassion, we can use that as a technique of mindfulness and alertness through the practice of Tonglen, or sending and receiving practice, which we spoke about some episodes ago, by doing compassion meditation and adding that to our, our daily meditation practice, we can begin to develop positive thoughts and attitudes that will hopefully mix in with the negative thoughts and attitudes that we've spent all these time, all this time developing and begin to make a change in our thoughts, feelings, and emotions from the inside. And so, um, in other words, the practice of mindfulness is not just for mindfulness sake. It's to take that mindfulness and put it in the service of something. Put your mindfulness in the service of the development of less reactiveness. Put your mindfulness in the service of developing more love and compassion. Last week, we also spoke about the four stages of shamatha meditation, uh, how we begin to notice our thoughts uh, and have and reach the first stage of meditation, which is like uh, when we notice that our thoughts are like a rushing waterfall. We also notice the second stage of meditation, where our, our thoughts are more like uh, a, um, a rolling river. And the third stage of meditation, where we notice that our thoughts are uh, like uh, an ocean with waves. And then lastly, uh, we notice that our thoughts are like a windless, waveless ocean. Uh, this uh, this is summary is um, uh, something I'll put up on the Columbus KTC website, uh, and you can find it on um, the virtual Shrine Room page. Go down to the bottom of columbusktc.org. Go to the bottom to, of the virtual um, Shrine Room page, and then you'll see uh, a little block of text, which has our Dharma Downloads page link. And you can click on Dharma Downloads, and it will take you to uh, prayer downloads, as well as downloads uh, regarding the stages of meditation. So I'll make sure that's put up today. By the way, these uh, stages of meditation come directly. In fact, they're quoted directly from Kempo Kartarimche's book, Dharma Paths. Okay, now, last time uh, I spoke a little bit about uh, how we know when we're doing a good job with our meditation. How do we know when it's going well? How do we judge and, and gauge how we're doing? And the main way that we can judge how we're doing is that we're able to follow and pursue the technique. In other words, when we first sit down to meditate, maybe our thoughts are like that raging waterfall. But as we sit and as we apply the technique, it gets easier and easier and easier. And remember how I said that when we first sit down to meditate, we start with one a short moment of attention. As we place our attention on the breath, it stays there for a little while. And then as we become fatigued, our attention wanders into the past or 
into the future or maybe about something in the present. And it's that wandering that we notice, take hold of our of the mind with our attention, label it, label the thoughts thinking, let them go and return to the breath for a fresh start. So it's in this process of noticing and letting go that we establish mindfulness and alertness. And what um, and what we talked about last week was uh, when uh, when we find that we have begun to uh, practice uh, well, and we can tell that our, our practice is going well and getting better, if we can notice our uh, distractions earlier in the process. In other words, we don't get five minutes into a distraction before we notice that we're thinking and then apply the uh, touching, letting go and returning technique. And so that's one way to tell if you're doing better. If you are able to notice your distractions and deal with them more easily with less uh, angst, with less anxiety and with better um, uh, power of returning, that's another way, that's a way to notice when your meditation is going well. But another, another way to notice if your meditation is going well is to notice your behavior. Um, the, the lamas have said that if a person is practicing meditation well, their personality and their mind should become uh, more supple. And the word supple is really interesting because it usually, suppleness usually means that something is, um, is, um, is uh, soft and movable. Uh, like a person who does yoga, their body becomes less stiff and more supple. So our mind becomes more supple. In other words, we, it's flexible. We can change it in a, in a moment without worrying about that. Because sometimes when people change something, they worry a little bit. They say, oh, you know, people will think I'm inconsistent or people will think badly of me if I'm angry about something and then suddenly I'm not angry about something. That is, their reaction is not exactly our problem. We have to work with our own minds and working with our own minds is our job. And so when our minds become more flexible, we might actually be able to notice that we're getting angry and pacify that anger by disengaging from the, the object of our anger and returning to the breath. And so uh, this is one way to notice uh, that your meditation is going well, is that your mind becomes more supple when you are not meditating and more flexible and easier to change. Another thing that you'll notice if you're doing well in your meditation is that you'll begin to notice the suffering of other people in a way that's not um, entirely painful, but is insightful. For example, sometimes uh, when, when we first start meditating, we don't really understand our own confusion. We don't know why we get confused, but we do get confused and we just don't notice it. And, um, but after we've been meditating for a while, we can almost tell exactly what provokes us and what upsets us. And we can begin to work with ourselves in the midst of that. And so, um, and so for other people, we begin to notice that other people are actually often under the sway of their negative mental afflictions and under the sway of their negative mental habits uh, and that they cannot it's almost like they're in a jar and they can't get out. They're in a little prison of their own making, of their own confusion. And they just, they're shaking the bars, but they can't get out. And what this does sometimes is makes a, make us feel uh, powerless because we don't know how to help them. 
And sometimes it makes us feel a, a little bit of empathy or compassion. I have a lot of friends who are part of the 12-step recovery tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they, uh, they have a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Meaning that person who is in front of me who is suffering could actually have been me. And so I should have compassion for them. And so our empathy and compassion will increase gradually as our shamatha gets better. Also, uh, we will notice that things that used to upset us a lot may still upset us, but not as much. And so uh, these are some of the things that you'll notice if your meditation is going well. We have to um, remember that there are also indications uh, when our uh, shamatha is not going well. And the major one of these is that instead of decreasing our judgment and increasing our compassion, our compassion is decreased in our egotism, particularly as evidenced by our judgment, our judgmental thoughts about others increases. For example, a classic thing that you will see Dharma people say is, that other person should meditate more. That other person should have a better control of their mind. After all, they're Dharma practitioners. They should know better and do better. What I always tell people is that the moment you start thinking like this, it's time to stop. It's time to stop and take a step backwards and actually think about what you just said. When we start to judge other people's meditation and when we start to judge other people's practice, this is an indication that our egotism or our ego fixation is increasing, not that it's getting smaller. So if you find yourself saying those other people should practice more, in a way, what you're really saying is, I need to practice more. And if we can recognize that we're the ones who need to practice and that judging other people's behavior and judging other people's practice as being less than ours only elevates our egotism and makes us fall prey to even worse egotistical attitudes. So as uh, one of the lamas um, uh, who was um, uh, quoted in a book once said, if your egotism is increasing, your practice is going in the wrong direction. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, someone asked me uh, last week, if I could comment on being able to meditate on other objects. So before I go on to my final topic, which is how to work with stagnation in meditation, um, I wanna talk a little bit about using other objects to meditate. Uh, we've been talking about using breath awareness as the main method of meditation, but there are other things that you can meditate on. Uh, I have in my collection of uh, items in uh, my shrine cabinet, I have a small stick and a small stone. And this small stick and stone are used in meditation. You can use a, a small stick. This one is just a stick of incense. It's about two, uh, two inches long, two and a half inches long. And you can place that little stick in a horizontal fashion like this, not like this, on the table in front of you. And placing the stick on the table in front of you, you can place your attention on the stick and just allow your eyes to sit and rest upon the stick. 
Now, what you'll notice is that after a short period of placing your attention on the stick, it, your attention will wander. And when your attention wanders, then that is the time to bring your attention back to the stick. So what you'll do is you'll have short, I'm, I'm going to call them bursts, short bursts of, uh, of attention. You place your attention on the stick and leave it there. And then when your attention wanders, you return it. And then um, I thought I had my I thought I had my favorite meditation stone right in the cupboard, but I moved it. So I but I do have a small coin here, but it's better to use a, a small uh, oval shaped or round stone about this big, about an inch or less. And you place it on the table in front of you. It should be a, it, according to um, the meditation uh, teacher that I had, uh, you're supposed to have uh, choose a pebble or a stone that has no remarkable fe features on it. And then you place that on the table in front of you. And then you place your attention on the stone for a while. And then when your attention wanders from the stone, you bring it back. You can use these as alternate forms of meditation, the stick and the stone. Additionally, you can use sound. There's a problem with using sound though, in that, it, for example, a lot of people like to use music to meditate with, but what they, what I find is that music has uh, an emotional content. So sometimes your emotions will be uh, triggered or engaged by uh, the music that you hear. So it's better to have it be a natural sound like the falling rain, or a babbling brook. And these days, you can actually get little um, MP3 audios of these sounds and play them, and then place your attention on the sound. You can also do this randomly when you're walking through your day. If you have a few minutes that you're quiet, just listen to the sound of the rain outside or listen to the sound of the wind or uh, listen to the sound of the motor on a small fan. You can, you can choose any of these sounds. And again, you just do these for short periods of time and bring back your attention when it wanders. Now, the very best object, and I'm looking to see if I have one that I can grab easily. I do, but it's, it's gonna be too big. But um, if you use an image of the Buddha, you can use an image of the Buddha as your um, as your object of meditation. Uh, this is a this image of the Buddha might be a little large for you, but what the what you would do would be that you would put this image of the Buddha on the table in front of you, and sitting the Buddha image on the table in front of you, you would place your attention on the entire image. and let your attention rest on the image. And when your attention wandered, you could bring it back to the image. Now, if you don't have a Buddha image, you can get a line drawing online. I will see if I can uh, put up a line drawing that I have used in the past 
when I've taught this to other people. You can use a drawing, you can use a statue. Um, His Eminence Tai Si Terimbache said the very best statue of the Buddha to use for um, meditating on an image of the Buddha is to use one that is iconographically correct and pleasing. Of course, it's even better if we use one that's consecrated and has relics inside. But whatever you use, you as long as it has this sort of these lovely proportions, very pleasing proportions, you can use a Buddha image to meditate upon also. One thing about meditating on the image, uh, if, uh, if you get a little bit bored and uh, are looking at your image and you get a little tired, um, Sitra Rinpoche, when he was talking about this, said, if you get a little tired, you can place your attention on the crown of the Buddha's head, the mound, the Usnisha, on top of the Buddha's head. And if you're agitated, you can place your attention on the soles of his feet. So uh, in this way, we can also use images uh, as a way of meditating. Many people uh, have images of the bodhisattvas as well, such as Tara and Chenrezig. But according to the meditation manuals, an image of the Buddha Shakyamuni sitting in equipoise with with his uh, left hand in his lap and his right hand touching the earth. This is the very best one to use for your meditation. In fact, uh, one of my meditation teachers said that what you can do is if your mind gets a little tired, you can start at the top and then note the entire body of the Buddha. Just note his ears and the top knot and his robes and then work all the way down uh, to uh, to the lotus beneath and then go back up again, always starting at the top, going down to the bottom and then ending at the top again. And in this way, one can use an image of the Buddha as as an object for meditation. In all these cases, when thoughts arise, you notice the thought, you can label it thinking, let go of it, and then return to the the breath for a fresh start. So that's a, a little bit about how you can use other objects to practice shamatha. Now, uh, the, the final thing I want to talk about today is, um, is uh, what to do if, if once, your, um, once your meditation begins to improve, what do you do next? If you recall, last week I shared a, a quotation from Kempo Carter Rinpoche when he was teaching a small group. Uh, the group asked, well, how do we know uh, when it's time to move on in our shamatha practice? And uh, Rinpoche said, uh, when... Uh, you notice that your um, that your grosser mental afflictions are improving when you notice that you have some small taming of uh, your grosser mental afflictions. That's the time to move on, because he said if you continue to meditate without proper guidance and continue to do your shamatha without proper guidance and also without progressing onto other practices, he said your shamatha could stagnate. Now, later, some years later, I wondered at first a little bit about what stagnation might mean. And, uh, and then uh, in 2006, uh, a questioner in the uh, audience at one of the 10-day teachings given by Kempo Carter Rinpoche asked him uh, what, uh, what stagnant, what, what, cons- uh, sorry, what, um, <laughs> I'm a little tongue-tied here, what is stagnant shamatha? And so um, when, uh, when Kemper Bache was asked about this, 
uh, he said, um, in my opinion, Rinpoche's answer was this, in my opinion, stagnant shamatha principally refers to a state where you are taking the state of shamatha itself as the goal, meaning pacification, and therefore you stagnate within it and there is no understanding that shamatha is merely a preparation for vipassana or insight. It is hard for me to be precise without knowing the particular experience of a particular practitioner because it could be that when you're stagnating, one of two things is happening. It could be as a result of the practice of shamatha, in which it is an experience of shamatha itself. And the other possibility is that it is just a state of what is called mental neutrality. And so, and so the, the student said, well, what is mental neutrality? The difference in mental neutrality from a state of shamatha is that in neutrality, it is the absence of clarity and the absence of mindfulness. So uh, what he's saying is that what can happen if we don't have proper uh, guidance in our shamatha practice, that after a while, we could think actually that we had arrived at the, at the goal of shamatha, which is calm abiding. And if that calm abiding is not genuine calm abiding, but rather a, a state of stupor or neutrality, where there's no clarity and there's no mindfulness. It's just like we're in a state of, uh, of dark obscurity. Uh, he used the word, I think uh, the translator used the word stupor, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and so if you're in this state of neutrality, then, you're, um, then your shamatha is actually going in the wrong direction. And you need to, uh, to seek guidance for this and to find ways to uplift yourself and to uh, practice with more clarity and more awareness. And uh, so I wanted to at least talk a little bit about how uh, one's shamatha can go wrong and why it is so important to have guidance in your meditation. Because um, as you remember from the diagram we shared, the, uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate goal of shamatha is to experience calm abiding, which Kemperbache explained as being able to place your attention on an object and leave it there for as long as you want. As long as you want. You can, you can just place your attention on something and leave it there as long as you want. And uh, this takes a lot of doing, and uh, most of us have not really approached that yet. But uh, by the same token, uh, that is the basis for the practice of, of laktong. Uh, laktong means higher seeing, or you can call it vipassana in uh, Sanskrit, and it means uh, insight, having insight. And if you remember when we went over this diagram briefly, and we saw that the end result of shamatha is that the mind uh, and the meditator are uh, peacefully abiding together, and that from that can arise uh, insight, which eventually, uh, through this, the sort of uh, of awareness, can cut the uh, negative veils of mental obscuration and a mental affliction. So, um, if we want to engage in insight practice, it's not uh, it's not wise to do so until our shamatha has stabilized, and it's also not wise to do so unless one is working with a teacher. So you have to be sure that before you start practicing uh, insight, especially in the Tibetan tradition, that you uh, practice with a teacher. So I uh, wanted to make sure I covered those things today. 
uh, because uh, next, uh, the, um, the next thing I wanna talk about is um, these other practices that Rinpoche recommended. Remember a few minutes ago, we were talking about his advice to the group of students who said, well, what do we do when we notice that our shamatha is improved? What do we do next? And uh, there are several practices that you can undertake as the next stages of your practice in meditation. The main one is called lojong or mind training. Lo in Tibetan means uh, mind and jong means training. So training the mind. And what are we training the mind in? We're training the mind in love and compassion and in something called bodhi chitta. Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I means awakening and chitta means mind or the mind of awakening or sometimes I say it's the mind that wants to wake up. And so bodhicitta, as we will find when we begin studying it, is uh, bodhicitta is that quality that we develop in which we wish for the benefit and enlightenment of all sentient beings and wish for our enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings and work on reducing our ego fixation through the practice of love and compassion. And so uh, the next topic I'm going to talk about will be bodhicitta, and I'll start that topic next week. Uh, but um, I'll give a little bit of a, of a uh, preview today and talk a little bit about uh, what bodhicitta is and why it's so important. And then we'll uh, continue this next week when we start uh, the, the topic of bodhicitta. We'll do at least two parts on uh, two talks on bodhicitta. And uh, so the, the practices that you can use your mindfulness and alertness, remember your drenpa and sheshin, your, you know, your uh, mindfulness and alertness, the two things you can uh, do, I mean, what you can do with these two things is that you can begin to practice and notice your mental uh, thoughts and habits as they appear during the day. And you can begin to throw or toss good things into the mix, including think such things as the prayer of the four immeasurables. Those of you who are familiar with the prayer know that it goes like this. May all beings be happy and have the causes of happiness. May they be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May they have that great happiness, which is freedom from suffering. May they dwell in great equanimity free of attachment and aversion to those near and far. And by thinking thoughts like these in your idle moments, you can begin to train your mind to be more kind and more loving and more open to others. And this, I believe in my heart, is what Kemper Rinpoche was meaning when he said that it is important for people who reach a uh, a plateau or a, a spot in their shamatha where they have begun to tame their grosser mental afflictions, that's when it's time to move on. The reason I think that this is uh, why, this is what he would have in mind, is that when I asked Kemperbache years ago, well, how should, how should we train students at our local Karma Take Some Choling or KTC centers? How should we train them? And he said, well, everybody should learn shamatha as their first practice, and then gradually they should learn lojong the, uh, through using the book on the seven-point mind training. And then after they've studied Lojong for a period of time and learned the Tonglen meditation for compassion, he said, then if they're interested, they can start on the Mahamudra path of the Nundro practice. And, uh, but he said, but he said it was very important that we train people in, uh, in 
loving kindness and compassion and bodhicitta first before having them start nundro, because he said if they just nundro without having the foundation of training the mind in love and compassion, he said their their nundro practice may not progress well, and it may not progress as well as it might if you had trained them in bodhicitta first. So this is why uh, all of the students who come to the KTC start with shamatha, and then eventually they learn Tonglen, and then sometimes after that, some people will choose to uh, to do uh, a, a a mantra practice as their main practice, and other people will choose to do the Mahamudra practice through the practice of Nundro, the preliminaries, and uh, and all of these practices train the mind in love, compassion, and bodhicitta, as well as training the mind in mindfulness. And so um, these practices then begin to build on the practice of shamatha and mindfulness. Uh, Kemperimbache said that uh, shamatha as a foundation practice is very important. He said, because how will you be able to train the mind in love and compassion if you can't place your mind on uh, uh, a, an object and leave it there and practice it thoroughly? And uh, so we can transform our mind through the practice of bodhicitta. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, and that was mantra practice. I know that a lot of people um, may think of a mantra practice as being um, sort of high tantra vajrayana or something of that nature. And yes, it is a very profound practice. But it doesn't have to be something uh, that is difficult or secret. For example, the practice of Chenrezig, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and his mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum or Om Mani Peme Hum, whichever the two ways you choose to recite it, practices of mantra and visualization are also a form of shamatha. Uh, I remember uh, long ago at KTD Monastery, the third Jamka Control Rinpoche was giving a teaching and a student came to him and said, well, you know, I would never want to do mantra practice because it's too high. You know, it's, it, it's too serious. I, I need to continue to practice just shamatha and, and nothing else for a long time. And, uh, and uh, the Jamka Rinpoche said, well, uh, remember, he said, shamatha, it has a lot of different forms. And he said, and when you visualize uh, a Buddha or Bodhisattva, when you visualize a Buddha or Bodhisattva and try to make that visualization stable, he said, you're actually practicing shamatha. It's a form of shamatha with special characteristics. And this is also borne out by, uh, uh, I, I try to grab the book, but I may get the wrong one. Uh, Boka Rinpoche, in his book, uh, Chenrezig, Lord of Love, Chenrezig, Lord of Love, um, Boko Rinpoche says that mantra practice uh, is a form of shamatha. And when you are emphasizing the uh, body of the Buddha or Bodhisattva that you're visualizing and emphasizing uh, the, the light quality of it, and then its empty quality, he said those are a way of practicing symbolic um, vipassana. And we can get into that when we do a Chenrezig study. So anyway, so that's a little bit about, about how placing one's attention on an image of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva and visualizing in mantra practice and also placing one's attention on the sound of a mantra is a way of practicing shamatha with extra benefits, that the extra benefits being 
that one is practicing a vipassana, at least in a symbolic method, a symbolic way. So um, this is uh, this is about all that we have time for today. Uh, but uh, I really want to thank all of you for sticking with it for four episodes so that I could finish uh, this topic on shamatha meditation. And I'm hoping that uh, you're able to create a habit of meditating every day, even if it's just a short uh, practice uh, of meditating every day. And, uh, and we'll talk next week a little bit about uh, daily practice. We did talk about it earlier. Uh, but if you remember, we talked about doing your daily practice uh, in, in one of two ways. You should have always have a sort of a short emergency practice that you can do even on days when you're sick and don't feel well or just having a crazy, crazy day. You have like a minimum daily practice of maybe just 21 mindful breaths and saying your refuge prayer, taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, at least doing some kind of short practice so that you can keep your flow of practice going and keep that streak of practice going. And uh, so next week we'll talk about bodhicitta and uh, start with that topic next week. So um, thanks uh, again for tuning in and watching these episodes. It's wonderful to spend time with you. I wish we could spend time in person, uh, but this is the next best thing. And um, what, what makes me feel happy now is to think that uh, uh, some of you will be able to um, uh, do some meditation practice even today, because when you do meditation practice, even just a little bit, you're changing the atmosphere in your heart and mind, and you're also changing the atmosphere in your home. So um, I want to thank you for doing that, for changing the atmosphere in your mind and changing the atmosphere in your home and community. So, um, so that was... Uh, we already talked about excellent at the beginning, which is dedicating our session to the benefit of all. A good in the middle is being patient with all of the hardships of listening to a lecture. And good at the end means that we dedicate the merit of our session to all sentient beings. So I'll recite a short prayer in English, thinking that we all gather all of the goodness of the session together and dedicate it to all sentient beings. Through this merit, may all attain the, the omniscience of Buddhahood. May it defeat our common enemy, wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may we free all beings. May we free all beings. May we free all beings. Okay, thank you. And I'll see you next time, next Sunday at 1. Omani Pei home. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.